Welcome if this is your first time. About a year ago, I remember my very first time in this room at a ministry night just like tonight, and I remember I was somewhere back there, and I remember being on my face, and I remember saying out loud to the Lord, I encountered the Lord as a freshman first year in university. That was a while ago. And I, I experienced what I believe was a measure of revival as a first year freshman in my university. And I remember being in that spot somewhere over, over there, my first time at ministry night, and out loud, this is what came out of my mouth. I was lying on the floor 10 minutes in, and I said, God, where have you been? I haven't felt you like this in 10 years. And it's not that I hadn't experienced God. Like, it's not like I had been on a drought. Like, it's not like I was in a desert season for a decade. That's not it at all. But there are some times and some places when God just draws near in a particular way and you know it. And for some of you guys, if this is your first time to a ministry night like this, I want to say you found a place where God draws near. You found a place where he's welcomed. You found a place where he likes to rest, where he likes to dwell, where he is comfortable. So tonight, I want to share a few, a few words from the word. We're going to look at scripture quite a bit tonight, and uh, I hope that's okay with all of you guys. I love the Bible. I'm just going to pray for us real fast, and then we're going to jump on in. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son and sending your son. We thank you that we get to approach the majesty and the splendor and the holiness and the fun of what it means to live in the kingdom of light. We thank you tonight for the opportunity to draw close. In Jesus' name, amen. My name is Caleb. I serve in Fire and Fragrance. Uh, raise your hand if you're in the DTS right now. Awesome. This is my crew. We're running a DTS. We're having a blast. It's week two at the moment. We're just diving headfirst into everything of God that we can get right now. If you were here last week at ministry night, it was our first time at the DTS at ministry night, and we just rolled on through. We were just like, just, just keep it going. We were going to speak, but they were like, forget it. it was, the glory was there. It was powerful. We love it. Open your Bibles tonight, if you have them, to Acts 13. This is the key verse that I want to hit on tonight. This is a verse that's very, uh, a chapter rather, that's very near and dear to my own heart. I think we're going to get it up on the screen as well, but I invite you to follow along in your Bible. Acts 13, verse 1, starts like this. Now at the church at Antioch. Pause, time out. Now at the church at Antioch. I want you to lean in to Acts chapter 13 tonight, and here's why. Because if we don't get Acts chapter 13 and the church at Antioch, we don't get the next 15 chapters of the book of Acts. What happens in the church at Antioch is one of the most cataclysmic shifts, dare I say, in the history of Christianity. And without the Holy Spirit's activity in this particular passage, you and I might not be in the room today. It's a crazy statement, but you and I might not be in the room today, and here's why. In Acts 1, if you're unfamiliar with your, with your like study of the book of Acts, I'm just going to give you like a brief overview. In Acts 1, Jesus says to his disciples, you're going to be my witnesses where? Does anybody know? What's the first place? Jerusalem. 
You're going to be in Jerusalem first, then Judea. Thank you, this side. And then what's the next place? Samaria. And then what's the last thing he tags on at the end? Ends of the earth. Up until this point in the book of Acts, the disciples have done the first three, right? You've got Acts 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. So it starts there. Then we start to see movement. We start to see the the disciples, they start to travel through Judea. You see miracles breaking out. Then you see these crazy, they start going to Samaria. For this, this, at this point in biblical history, going to Samaria and preaching the gospel, that's like outrageous. That's crazy. That's so like, whoa, like you're on the fringes right now of what, we've exp- of what we've known of God up until this point. The Sumerians are different. They're not like us. And then you get this crazy story where Peter has this heavenly vision. He goes to the house of a man named Cornelius, a centurion, and this for the very first time, really, we see the Holy Spirit poured out on the Gentiles. But what happens after that? Peter, it says, goes back to Jerusalem. He gives a report. He gives an account of what happens at Jerusalem. And then it's basically my paraphrase. The Jews say, awesome. We love it. And that's like it. That's it. So up until Acts 13, I want you to catch this. If you're not a Jew and you're not an Ethiopian eunuch or a household of an Italian centurion, tough luck. The gospel hasn't come to you yet. You're in the dark. You're a stranger to the covenant of promise. Until Acts 13. If you're not Jewish in the room today, you should be very excited about that. Now, you can go ahead and put it up on the screen. Now, at the church at Antioch. There were, are we there yet? No, I'm just going to flip there. At the church at Antioch, there were Prophets and teachers. Everybody say prophets and teachers. There's a lot of incredible things about the church of Antioch. One of the very first things is that prophets and teachers were dwelling there together in harmony. What do I mean by that? Well, if you've ever been around somebody who's sort of prophetic, if you've ever been around somebody who's sort of a teacher, you know that sometimes these people don't always get along, right? No, come on, get, get real for a second. Like, people that are, like, prophetic, they're, like, they're, you know, they're, like, they're living in the swirl. They're having these encounters, these visions. And the teachers are over here, like, bro, get a grip. Like, what are you, you get, I don't understand anything that's happening. Teachers are over here making lists of, like, three, where the lists start, like, each part of the list starts with the same letter of the alphabet, right? We're like, okay, this is this. Let's start with the letter E, then E, then E. There's three E's. All right, and that's bullet points. Here you go. Teachers, the teachers are like over here trying to organize things. The prophets are like, we have to do this now. This is the now word of God. Now, right now. We're doing this right now. The teachers are like, well, we have to kind of sift through the whole council of scripture and go, you know. And the teacher, the teachers like don't really know what to do with prophets sometimes. And prophets are like, why are you so dull? But it says, at the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Antioch was a city of great diversity. It was one of the largest in the, in the ancient Roman world. It had people from all over the place. It was known as a bit of a melting pot. It was a place where you could come and you could interact with people that were maybe a bit different than you. And I have to believe that maybe that's part of the reason why God decided to do something really specific at Antioch. Here's the thing that I want to put before us tonight. 
could this city, could the communities that are represented in this room tonight, could we be on the verge of another Antioch? Could we be another Antioch? A city whose impact had global implications. My question tonight is, could this city, could the city of Potchefstroom be a city that has global implications? A small town. Some would say, not much. There's not much there, but there's something. God moves in a particular place at a particular time with a particular people. And here, here's what I want to say. It doesn't happen every day. Sometimes it only happens every 10 years. The city of Antioch had a moment in history, guys, where prophets and teachers came together and they said, God's doing something in our midst and we're going to respond rightly. They had a window. I just got a text from a friend who lives in Turkey where uh, the, the city of Antioch was, is. Right now, the city of Antakya, Antioch, modern-day Antioch, is in rubble right now because of a massive earthquake that hit the country a few days ago. You don't get the window forever. The window isn't open all of the time. But I'm here to tell you tonight, and I'm here to challenge you and ask you, even a few weeks ago as we were speaking, as we were talking about some of the prophetic history over Potchefstroom and what the Lord might want to release here, my question for you is, could this be a city that has global implications? And if so, could we look to another city, an ancient city, whose impact stretched through the rest of the book of Acts and beyond. If we want to do that, though, we have to look at this city. So at the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, a Menaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. All right, pause again. Who are these guys? There's five men that are specifically listed, that are specifically named, called out in this portion of Scripture. You have to ask the question, like, who, who are they? Who's on the leadership team at Antioch? Because if what happened at Antioch had global proportions, if, if it stretched across the globe and touched the Gentiles, all of us today, who were these guys? Okay, number one, we know Saul, right? We know Paul. This is not, at this point in the story, if you've been following the story of Acts, this is not Paul the Apostle in the sense that we know him. This is Paul who had an encounter on the road to Damascus about a decade ago. And guess what? He's been mostly in hiding for the last decade. He's been in his hometown of Tarsus, probably trying to preach, probably being persecuted. We don't get this part of Paul's life very much. These are called Paul's hidden years. And there's a guy at Bar uh, named Barnabas at Antioch who in the middle of a move of God that's happening, he says, I'm going to go get my buddy Paul. I remember him from a few years back. I think he's a pretty good Bible teacher. So he goes and he grabs Paul. Paul, I just like to think of him this way. He's like, he's like at this point in the story, he's like the dark horse PhD with a past. He's like, he's like ex-Pharisee, now kind of thrown out of his like group who murdered people. Like that's Paul. Nobody believes in this guy. The only reason he's at Antioch is because Barnabas. Who's Barnabas? Well, Barnabas, as we know, he's the son of encouragement, right? 
His real name was Joseph, but he was so encouraging that his friends just changed his name. They're like, you're not Joseph anymore. Forget that. Your name is Barnabas, the son of encouragement. I like to think he was a bit like Asher over here. Like he, he was like the most encouraging guy to be around all the time. You couldn't get around this guy without feeling encouraged. Barnabas was from an island. He was from the island of Cyprus. He had a Levitical background, meaning he was like of the tribe of Levi. He was a, from a landowning family. He probably, you know, they probably had a farm. He sells the farm to come be a disciple. Okay? Who else is here? We get another guy. We get a guy named Simeon or Simon of Niger. This guy is, I like this guy. He is from likely North Africa. And I'd love to spend more time on this. I'm going to give you three Bible verses for why. I think that he's probably the same Simon or Simeon that carries the cross of Jesus on the way to, the, to Golgotha. Yeah. It's cra- it is crazy, actually. Luke 23, Acts 11, Romans 16, you can study it later. Highly likely that he's a black man who carried Jesus' cross on the way to Golgotha, on the leadership team. Okay? The next guy, his name's Lucius of Cyrene in North Africa. We don't get much on him. He's kind of a mystery man. Like, I'm not going to get, I don't know. He's just Lucius of Cyrene. That's all we know. And then the final guy is named Menaean. Menaean, it says, is brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. So this guy's got kind of a wealthy background. Like, he kind of came up, he's a, I would call this in like American English, like a blue blood. I don't, I don't know if you guys say that. Like, he, he's got royal kind of like background a little bit. He probably, I don't know, from a high background, and for whatever reason, either he's been forced out or he's willing left, he's chosen to leave his circle of influence, move up to Antioch, and he's made his home there. Now, God appoints these guys, and this is, these are the five that get named at Antioch. Okay, so I'm just going to do a refresher just so we're all on the same page. You have a teacher who murdered people, an islander from a priestly family, a black African who carried Jesus' cross, another North African, and a rich kid outcast from high society. That's the leadership team. Come on, if we're not thinking through implicationally scripture, we're not reading it right. You gotta think through who these guys were. You also have to think through how they interacted, right? Because like I said, there's teachers and prophets at Antioch. Kinda could be a clash there. But then I got to think about some of their meetings that they had together. And you got to think about some of their cultural backgrounds, because these guys are from different places, right? Take, take Paul, for example. Paul is this Pharisee. He, I mean, he wrote the book of Romans. So I got to think he was like, I'm just thinking of having a meeting, right? Like he was probably like pretty strict on time, probably like more Afrikaans. Like he was just like, we're going to end at this time. We're going to begin at this time. This is it, right? Like you've read Romans. Like Paul's like... And he's like in the meeting with an islander, <laughs> Barnabas, the most encouraging. Paul's like, okay, well, uh, I think that about wraps it up. Uh, any, anything else? And Barnabas is like, dude, I love the way you lead meetings, dude. I love it. <laughs> and Paul's, Paul's like, thank you, Barnabas. You're so encouraging. Really appreciate it. And Barnabas is like, no, seriously, like you wrapped up that meeting so well. Almost as well as you wrapped up the book of Galatians, bro. Like, you are such a good writer. You write so well. 
He writes so, and Paul's like, okay, bro, like, I got to go hang out with Lucius. Like, we have an after meeting. And Barnabas is like, no, dude, you're such a good writer. Did you write Hebrews too? You can tell me if you wrote Hebrews. I think you're such a good writer, bro. Paul's like, no, dude, I, I, for real, like, I got to go. We're meeting up with Lucius. Barnabas is like, oh, I love Lucius. Um, I'll come too. Can I bring my amazing cousin, Mar- John Mark? Can I bring him? Like, he, can he just come with? Paul's like, you always want to bring John Mark. <laughs> Okay, okay, fine, bring John Mark. And then they, they walk out to the meeting, right? These guys had like cultural interfacing. Like there were real issues they had to work through. You have Manaean brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, right? Probably a little like, I don't know, privilege going on there. I don't know. He's, just, he's like, hey, he shows up to the meeting. Hey, uh, did, anyone, did anyone pick up coffee on the way here? Uh, like, I don't know. Hey, Simeon, did you, did you pick up coffee on the way over here? Simeon's like, bro, I've picked up enough. Are you kidding me? Are you serious right now? Man's like, okay. How are all of these leaders able to operate in unity together that will bless a city that will impact the next generation of missions? How do they do it? How do they do it? Because if you're not thinking through who these guys are, you're going to miss the conflict. And it's in the conflict that the good stuff is. That's where the good stuff's at. How did these men manage to do it? And we get it right there in the text. At Antioch, these five men, Verse 2, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. When they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and set them away. I want to put three things in front of us tonight as a community, as a city that I believe were three of the keys that gave, I told you this is what teachers do, that three of the keys that unlocked a unity and city that had global implications. Can we do that tonight? Amen. As soon as I say global implications, some of you guys are like, dude, I'm just trying to like love my family. I'm just trying to keep my home in order. I'm just trying to like go to work and love the people. And I get that. And that's good and right. Jesus Christ was known as Jesus of Nazareth, of a particular place at a particular time and a particular people. All global ministry is local. Hear me, all of you DTS students that are going to go on outreach, global outreach. All global ministry is local ministry. Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God with local breath. He lived in a place. He lived in a time. He lived with the people. So when I say global implications, what I'm not saying is being listless and void and just traveling around blessing here and there. And That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying what happens when a people in a place that are rooted and grounded see things that touch the ends of the earth? The first key that I want to give us tonight is the key of worship. You see the church at Antioch worshiping, worshiping. We just did it tonight, worshiping. You know why I loved last week so much at ministry night? You know why? Business consultants will tell you there's two ways to identify core values in a company or in a culture. 
There's two ways. Number one, when you take something too far, when you're willing to overdo it, and number two, when you're willing to take punishment for a value. That's how you know your core values. Last week, we took worship way too far, like just over the top. We just went above and beyond. It was not needed. It was not necessary. We just did it. And I looked back after, the, after last Tuesday night, and I thought, I know what our core value is. We are a people of worship. Hallelujah. Praise God. We're a people that will take worship way too far all of the time. There's another guy like that in the Bible. His name was David. If we have the verse, go ahead and put it up. If, you don't, uh, if, we, if we don't, just turn to 2 Samuel 7. And you can see this verse with me. I'll just summarize. 2 Samuel 7, it says that God made David's enemies to be at rest around him. When a man's heart is at rest, that's when you see what's actually in his heart. When God makes your enemies to be at rest around you, that's when you actually see what's in your own heart. David can do anything he wants. He can be anything he wants. He can go anywhere he wants. And it's in 2 Samuel 7 that you see David in this dialogue, first with Nathan the prophet. And he says, I want to build God a house. It's not right that I should live in a house of cedar and the, and the ark of God has a tent. And God says to David, which one of my friends have I ever told this to? David, you want to build me a house? Go for it. David goes after this. He's about to spend the rest of his life's strength and millions of dollars in our modern era on building God a resting place, on building God a house, a temple. This moves God's heart so much that unlooked for, he says, David, you've decided to establish my house so I will build yours. I'm going to make a covenant with you that's going to go beyond your lifetime. And in fact, one of your children will sit on the throne of Israel perpetually. I'm going to make a covenant with you. You want to build me a place to worship me all of the time? I am going to vindicate you before everybody, both in your era and beyond a local act of worship that has global implications. So much so that when David's son Solomon actually builds and completes the temple, people are coming from all over the earth to see it. I lived in Istanbul, Turkey for a while, and there's a story about ancient Constantinople. And when the Russian czars, when the Russian empire was looking for a religion and which to base their empire off of. They traveled all over the world. They sent, they sent ambassadors to visit the Muslims. They sent ambassadors to visit the Jews. And they sent ambassadors to visit the Christians. And when they arrived in Constantinople, at the time a Christian city, they go to the Hagia Sophia. They go into this massive place of worship that had been built and established there for hundreds of years. And famously, according to legend, that what they say is they say, we did not know whether we were in heaven or on earth. And the Russian Empire converts to Christianity because of a localized act of worship in a particular place at a particular time amongst a particular people. Could not we build a place of worship where God rests in a city and people travel from miles and miles and continents away to come visit the place where they only hear about God moving? I'll be honest, that's a big reason I moved here. Me and my buddies used to always joke 
Like, dude, next revival you hear about, we're just getting on planes and we're going. I said, I haven't felt you like this in 10 years. I'm coming back. Another person from the Bible, from the New Testament that we get is Mary. Mary, who breaks her alabaster jar famously at Jesus' feet in Matthew 26. Her extravagant act of worship. Here's the thing. Extravagant worship on the level that I'm talking about, what David did and what Mary did, does two things. Two things. It astonishes God, and it creates controversy with man. Anytime you seek to give yourself to God extravagantly through worship, you will do those things. God is astonished at David's heart. What in the, I never told anybody that. And all the nations around him are looking at like, David, what are you doing in your golden age? Mary breaks her alabaster jar. Men around are astonished, and then they get angry. They say, why this waste? This could have been used for the poor. This could have been used for all these other things. Why would you, Jesus, why would you allow this? And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. What this woman has done, I am going to vindicate her everywhere that this gospel goes. Her message and her story will be told. I dare you to think of another person who Jesus says that about ever. What? What, Jesus, why? A local act of worship that has global implications. It's not just at the church at Antioch. It's not just in the Old Testament. It's in a simple act. You're like, I can't do anything global. You don't have to. Right where you are, you are allowed to break your alabaster jar before the Lord. And he says, I will remember it forever. Wherever this gospel goes, I will remember it forever. Do you believe that your small expression of worship could have global implications? I want to challenge everyone in this room tonight. You, some of you guys are young. Raise your hand if you're 18. Yes. Some of you guys are like, Caleb, you're being so intense about this. I'm only 18. You're not 18. You are a movement waiting to happen, and you need someone to tell you. There are dreams that God wants to put in your heart, that he wants to bring expression that will have global implications. And you're like, I'm just 18. I don't need to worship like that. I don't need to give myself to the Lord like that. You're, stop talking like you're just 18. David was a young teenager on the back hills of Bethlehem when God saw him. He said, I'm going to take you from the back hills to the palace. It's going to be a journey, but you're going to get there. All right. Key number two that you see at Antioch. Fasting. We have to talk about fasting. Everyone take a deep breath. Fasting. Oh, man, he's going to talk about that. Yeah, we have to. First time I fasted, I thought I was going to die. I literally thought I was going to die. I was like, I've never done this. I think, that I, don't, I, like, I don't know what's happened to my body. It's hunger pangs. Like, you're, you know what I mean? Like, the very first time you ever fast, it's not a fun experience. You're not used to it. Most of us probably are not used to that. What I want to say is that fasting was so part of the culture of the church at Antioch that the writer of the book of Acts 
goes out of their way to mention it. While they were worshiping the Lord or ministering to the Lord and fasting. It doesn't say what kind of fast. It doesn't say how long. It's just that they were fasting. What I want to tell you is that fasting is a critical, critical ingredient to any community that has ever sought to change the world in Christ. Couple, couple ground rules for fasting, okay? What does fasting not do? Fasting does not make God love us more, just so we're all clear. Doesn't make you, it doesn't make God love you more. What it does is it empties you and allows you to be aware of how much you need God's love. That's what fasting does. Second, what does fasting not do? Fasting does not make us more spiritual. So if you're fasting all the time, great. Doesn't matter. Doesn't make you more spiritual. What it should be doing is revealing your own poverty of spirit and how broken you are. When I fast, oh my gosh, I am the grumpiest person sometimes. I think I'm spiritual and then I fast and then I'm like, I am the meanest person alive. I am hangry. I am not fun to be around always. People are like, are you mad at me, Caleb? I'm like, no, I'm so sorry. I can't tell you why, but I'm so sorry. <laughs> Fasting does not inherently make us better people. It doesn't. It usually reveals our lack, and it allows us opportunity to feed off of the Word of God, to plant seeds in our heart that come from the Word and help us depend on His strength and our weakness. That's what fasting does. Okay, so that's what fasting doesn't do. But here's my question for you. If at the church at Antioch they had this leadership team worshiping the Lord, they have, I mean, for goodness sake, they have Paul and Barnabas. Come on. You wouldn't want to go to that church? You wouldn't want to go to the church? Where, like, they have stuff going on. There is a move of God at Antioch. So the question is, why are they fasting? Usually fasting, for many of us, we only associate with calamity or death or danger or like national tragedy, right? All the time in the Old Testament, they're fasting when bad things are happening. The prophets are like, call a fast, sackcloth, ashes, tear your garments, okay? Why are they fasting at Antioch? This is not a tear your garments moment. This is not a bad moment. Things are happening. This train is moving. We are going somewhere. Why are they fasting at Antioch? should make you ask the question. We get a bit of an answer from Jesus' words in Mark 2. I'm just going to read. Open up to Mark 2 if you have it. Mark 2, 18, 22 through 22. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting? But yours are not. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. And then catch this next part. This is really important. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old and a worse tear will result. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If one does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. Instead, new wine is poured into new wineskins. Okay, I know some of y'all gotta be from down south. There is wine country in this country, okay? I know some of y'all know how wineskins work. 
Don't act like you don't. Okay? The way it works is you pour the new wine into a new wineskin. Why? Because if you're using an old wineskin, like old stretched leather, the fermentation process of the new wine will actually cause that old wineskin that's like old and leathery and already expanded, it will, it will blow it up. It'll, it'll, it'll burst. It'll ruin all the wine. So in order to pour new in order to ferment new wine, you've got to get new wineskin. At least that's what my commentary said. I don't, I don't know. Why does the church at Antioch need to be fasting? And I say need on purpose. Why does the church at Antioch need to be fasting? What does fasting do? Number one, fasting creates hunger. Fasting creates hunger. Physical hunger. And in fact, fasting will make you hungry for whatever you put in front of yourself when you're fasting. If you're fasting and putting TV in front of you, you'll be hungry for TV. Your, your soul and your body is looking for something to latch onto, to just grab hold of, because you need something of sustenance. Fasting makes you hungry. Set Jesus before your soul when you fast. Set the word before your soul when you fast. I promise you, it is the best thing to do. So what does fasting do? Fasting makes you hungry. What else does fasting do? Fasting gives you spiritual authority. I thought you said, hang on. Fasting gives you spiritual authority. Jesus talks about this in Mark 9. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive the demon out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. I don't know how it works. I like, you do one day of fasting, you supernatural, but I don't know. I, don't, I can't tell you. There's not a recipe for it. But it's one of the clearest examples that I can give you that there is a correlation between fasting. Everyone would like to tell you there's another way. There's Jesus' words. I don't know. Deal, deal with him. Fasting and prayer leads to authority in the Spirit. What else does fasting do? Fasting gives you more. Maybe a better way to say it is that fasting positions you for more. Here's what I mean. Uh, several weeks ago, where's Brendan? Brendan and I, where, is Brendan here? Brendan and I were in California, and we're walking out on this pier, and it's nighttime. And there, in, we're in Huntington Beach, Cooper, shout out, we're in Huntington Beach, and there are these surfers in the dark that are surfing next to this pier. We're just walking, and we look down, and there's these surf guys, and we're like, these guys are out of their minds. It's kind of like getting dark. It's not fully dark yet. And we're like, okay, they're probably about to go inside. We stay out on the pier, it gets like pitch dark, dark. These surfers in freezing water are out there surfing at night. Number one, sharks. Number two, it's cold. Number three, how do you know where the waves are, bro? Seriously, I was, I was like watching them. I was like, they, they see, and then this is what I realized. They knew where the waves would break in the dark. They were such good, they were so good at surfing they, they didn't have to see the wave coming. They knew where to position themselves for when the wave would break. That's what fasting's like. Fasting helps you get positioned for where the wave is coming. It doesn't create a wave. The surfers are not out there making waves, right? But they are out there ready to hit the wave when it comes. Fasting in the dark. You say, God, I don't know where to go. I'm so weak. I'm so helpless. Speak to me. Tell me where to be. And God says, all right, move to the left. And you move to the left. He says, okay, move forward. You move forward. 
there's the wave. All of a sudden, you get on your board and you ride that thing all the way in, baby. Shaka Mahalo. That's what fasting does. Fasting positions you. And the final thing, fasting gives new wineskins. It creates in you something that can contain, this is the best way I know to say it, fasting does something in you that helps you contain the newness of God on the inside. If God is speaking to you about fasting, here's what it probably means. It probably means he wants to do something new in you or through you. If, fast, if fasting is part of a, a community's regular rhythm, it probably means that that community is used to doing new and innovative things and they're open to the voice of God, leading them and guiding them because they need the voice of God leading and guiding them to position them for the wave that they believe in faith is coming even when they can't see it. That's what fasting does. Is it hard? Absolutely. Is it mandatory? Yeah, but you're missing the point. If you're thinking fasting, we have to do fasting because it's mandatory. Jesus says it. He says, why would, why would they fast when I'm with them? They're going to fast when I'm gone. You fast because of love for the bridegroom. It's not mandatory. Come on, man. Is it hard? Yeah. Is falling in love hard? Sure. Is it worth it? Yes. That is the motivation for fasting is love for the bridegroom. And at the church at Antioch, they are in love with the bridegroom. We don't know what's coming. You know how I know that the church at Antioch was positioned rightly for what God wanted to do in their generation? Here's how. Acts 11. Put it up on the screen. Acts 11. You got to rewind the tape. Show, the, show me the tape. Acts 11. Meanwhile, those scattered by the persecution that began with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. You have three regions, okay? Just remember that, three regions. Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch. Speaking the message only to Jews. So up until this point, the gospel's only going forward to the Jews. But some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks as well, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. What's the next part? The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Here's my question for you. The Gentile church, by all rights, should have started at Caesarea with Peter preaching to the household of Cornelius. The Holy Spirit comes, the whole household is baptized, and then you don't really hear about it again. There are three places named in Acts 11, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. One of those places gets a whole chapter, Acts 13, Antioch. What about the other two? I would submit to you that one of the reasons the hand of the Lord was on those at Antioch and that one of the reasons they were ready for the innovative plans of God to reach the ends of the earth was because they were fasting. I know that's not popular. I know that's not always fun to hear, but hear me. They were ready for the wave that was coming because they had given themselves to worship and fasting. My question for you is, does your fasting have global implications? Because what happens at Antioch shakes the world. Another man who's fasting rocked the nations, Daniel 9. Daniel, giving himself over 80 years old, giving himself to fasting and praying and seeking understanding about a prophecy from the book of Jeremiah 
When Jeremiah said after 70 years they're going to come back, the Jews are going to come back into the promised land of Israel, Daniel reads it, says we're in year 68, it's time to fly, starts giving himself to fasting. And guess what? Ezra 1.1 says that the Lord stirred up the heart of of the king Cyrus. The Lord stirred up the heart of a king. My question for you is, does your fasting stir the heart of kings? Because 50,000 Jews get to go back to Israel when the king's heart is stirred up. Because one man set his face to, to understand what the Lord had spoken and to agree with it in prayer and fasting. Your fasting can shake nations. Final key, prayer. Leonard Ravenhill says that a sinning man will stop praying and a praying man will stop sinning. That's a good one. And I have, I just wonder if the same is true for cities and regions and countries. Would a praying city stop sinning? Would a praying nation stop sinning? When God calls men and women to lead movements in the Bible, you know where he usually takes them? It's so throughout the narrative. You can't miss it. You know where God sends people when he loves them a lot and wants them to lead movements? He sends them to the desert. He sends them to the desert. He's like, I love you, Moses, to the desert. And then back to Egypt and then back to the desert, baby. 80 years in the desert. Wow. David, God's like, I love you. You're going, you're going to be running through the desert. And someone's going to be trying to kill you the whole time. John the Baptist, ooh, John the Beloved. None has been born greater among men than John the, Belo- John the Baptist. Ooh, you know where you're going to have your ministry, bro? In the desert. Jesus is about to receive, like, the moment where he steps on the scene. God's, the Holy Spirit specifically leads him into the desert. Paul, what were you doing for three years in the desert of Arabia? I don't know. But to the desert you go. When God raises up men and women to lead movements, he sends them into the desert. And you have to ask the question, why? Why does he do it? It's because, there's probably a lot of reasons, but I think one of them is because the desert's a quiet place to hear God's voice and to pray and talk with him. He's got to get you to a place where you're so dependent on him and where everything else around you quiets you, is quieted, so that he can speak to you and that you can speak back without interruption. For some of you, that's what DTS is. When God wants to raise up movements, he sends people to the desert so he can talk with them in prayer. My question for you is, does your prayer life have global implications? You say, Caleb, again, I'm just trying to love my family. I'm just trying to love the people around me here in this place. Amen. Do that. Keep doing that. We will never stop doing that. You say, I don't feel that powerful when I pray. I feel very weak, actually. I feel like all I have are these just like broken, 
little phrases that just kind of come out of my mouth, and I'm just trying to sing along, and I'm just trying to pray, and I'm just trying to have a quiet time. And, and how could God, what, what could come out of me in prayer, what could come out of my soul that would move heaven and earth and shift the hearts of kings and all these things? How, how could that be? I want to give you a couple more examples from the Bible of why I think God loves the prayers of specifically broken people and specifically people that feel barren. In fact, quite literally, I want to give you a few examples of people that feel barren. There are six women that I can think of in the Bible that are barren, that we know of, that end up having kids. There's six of them. Three of them are amongst the patriarchs, okay? So Genesis 15, Abraham, Sarah. We know Sarah's barren. Track with me on these. I'm just going to fly through these because here's what I want to show you. I want to show you that the prayers of barrenness, the prayers that when you feel like I got nothing to give, I have nothing that wants in me that wants to pray, God loves that if you couple it with faith. When you step in, in a place of barrenness, fully step into a place of faith, even though you're still in the place of barrenness, God looks at you and he says, I will do the thing that you ask. I will establish something because you prayed in faith and you prayed the prayer of faith. I believe, I'm believing that in this room there are prayers of faith that have yet to be prayed. There are prayers of faith that have yet to be unleashed, that have yet to be released to the heavens. Genesis 15, Sarah and Abraham unable to have children. It says that in Genesis 15 that Abraham prays and because of it, he gets this angelic visitation. He says, this time next year, your wife's going to have a baby. She laughs, doesn't really believe it. Guess what? A year later, there's a baby. That baby is Isaac. Isaac, young man, grows up, falls in love with a woman named Rebecca. Guess what? Rebecca also unable to have children. It says in Genesis 25, Isaac prayed, and God responds again. He knows the story of his ancestor. He knows the story of his father. He says, I know you did this for me. You'll do it again. Praise. Boom. They have a kid. That kid is Jacob. Jacob grows up, has two wives, Rachel and Leah. Genesis 25. Leah has having all the children. Rachel has none, and she, she cries out to the Lord, why won't you give me a child? Lord responds to her prayer of barrenness, of brokenness, even of jealousy. He says, I will honor because you asked me in your brokenness. I'll give you a child. She has a child named Joseph. All three of those children are children of promise from women who were barren. They are children that would go on to become patriarchs, the builders and architects of nations. My question for you is, can our prayers give birth to those that we become architects of nations? My answer is yes, because I see it in the Bible. I'll go on. Judges 2. There's a man and his wife, Manoah and Manoah's wife. We don't get the wife's name. They pray. They ask the Lord. They're barren. They ask the Lord. They say, Lord, give us a kid. Another crazy visitation, boom, they have a kid. That kid's name is Samson. Samson has a problematic life at best, but he will go on to topple this crazy Philistine temple and liberate the people of Israel in his generation. 1 Samuel 1, a woman named Hannah approaches, the temp, approaches where the Ark of the Covenant is. She begins to, to pray, 
crying out. Do you, do you see a pattern? These are mothers that aren't mothers yet. These are the bitter tears of women who are asking for something that they don't yet have but are believing for in their souls, like deep down. I was made for something and I don't yet have it. Eli the priest says, whatever you're praying, it will be answered. She comes back a year later. She's got a baby. She gives him to the Lord. His name is Samuel. And then finally in Luke chapter 1, you see Zechariah and Hannah. Zechariah goes into the temple, an old man, him and his wife both, beyond childbearing years. He steps into the place of, steps into the interior of the temple. An angel shows up, says, you're going to have a baby. He doesn't believe it. Mouth gets silenced. His wife gets pregnant. Their child is John the Baptist. Those last three men all have something in common. And I don't have time to dive deep into this. So I'm just going to tell you what it is. Besides being Bible characters, all three of these men, Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist, are Nazarites. All three of them, in the specific instructions that, that God gives to the families, we know from those instructions that they are born Nazarites all their days. Can't cut hair, can't drink alcohol, can't touch a dead body. If you don't know what a Nazarite is, in the Old Testament, God had given his people a way of coming close, of, of drawing to near to him in a very specific way, of consecrating themselves before the Lord. The children of barren women grew up to become consecrated before the Lord and to build a nation or to lead it into reformation. The prayers of brokenness in faith did that. You're telling me that your prayers are too small? You're telling me that your prayers are too little? Are they filled with faith? Then can they not move a nation? Does your prayer life have global implications? I want to share a story about a friend of mine named Brian. Brian, as a young man, gave himself to prayer and worship and fasting. He was part of a community, he's a close friend of mine, he's part of a community that was in the United States and they were praying and fasting specifically for the ending of abortion in America. This is something that their community gave themselves to tirelessly, praying and fasting. So he says, I, I want to give my heart and soul to this. I'm going to seek the Lord. I'm going to do a fast. I'm going to do a Daniel fast, okay? No meats, no sweets, Whatever, some of you are probably better at it than I am. I'm just no meats, no sweets. I know there's some other stuff. He says, I'm gonna do a Daniel fast. I'm gonna Daniel fast for a year, one whole year. Oh my gosh. So he does a Daniel fast for a year, praying for the ending of abortion. At the end of the year, he's going to break his fast. He's walking across his university campus. And as he's walking across his campus, on his way, literally, to break his fast, he runs, into, he runs into a guy he doesn't know. They start talking. As they talk, he's like, bro, my name's Brian. What's your name? He's like, my name's Daniel. He's like, okay, cool. And they keep talking. They keep walking. He's like, uh, dude, like, what's your full name? And the guy's like, my name is Daniel Fast. My name is Daniel Fast. The final night, I'm not making this up. This is the final night of his fast. He goes, oh, I can't break this fast. <laughs> goes on another two years of this Daniel fast. 
I'm not even to the crazy part of the story yet. Another two years fasting and praying for the ending of abortion in America. Couple, a little bit into the fast, he has a dream. In the dream, he sees red tape over people's mouths with the word life written on it. He wakes up from the dream. He tells the people in his community. They say, that's an interesting dream. What if we did it? What if we actually did the dream that you had while praying and fasting? See, God honors faith. You don't know. You're not sure. And you're like, let's just try it. Especially with, sometimes with dreams. You just got to do the dream. So he does the dream. They go pray in front of the Supreme Court. They put this, the highest court in the land in the U.S. They put this, this tape over their mouths, this red tape, write life on it. There's a photographer there that day. Photographer takes pictures. These pictures go viral. The media in the United States ends up falling in love with this picture. They hate the pro-life movement, but they love this picture. It's a powerful image of red tape with life written over it. Last year, abortion at a federal level was outlawed in the United States. And one of the most emblematic pictures, one of, one of the most important pictures of this whole miraculous journey towards legalizing something that has killed millions. At the center of that storyline was a young man who gave himself to worship, to prayer, and to fasting. And that worship and that prayer and that fasting now has implications for millions and millions and millions of unborn babies. My question tonight, for all of us, even as we close, my question, I just want to invite the band actually back up, is would we believe that in a place like Pachastrum, in a city, in a church at Pachastrum, could God move like he did in the book of Acts at Antioch? I feel tonight that there's some in this room, I know, that even as I've been talking, even as I've been sharing, you're saying, I, I don't fully understand everything. My, my, my mind's trying to catch up, but my spirit's alive right now. There's something in this that's making me come alive. And I, I believe tonight there's an invitation for grace over these three areas, prayer, fasting, and worship of a consecrated community that 10, 20, 50 years from now, when someone asked you, what did you give your youth to? You'd say, I gave it to prayer, fasting, and worship. When someone said, what was it like when you were at the church at Pachastrum? you say, let me tell you, it was filled with three things, prayer, fasting, and worship. I believe tonight that there is grace on many of us in this room to give our lives in a greater measure to this. So if that's you, I want to invite you forward as the band just begins to play. And I want to ask that the Lord tonight would impart something from his heart over these things, that we would become a community, that we would become a church like the church at Antioch.